ఇన్స్పైర్డ్ thousands of uh, people to take up uh, krishna bhakti uh, <laughs> for many decades uh, so we are extremely grateful that maras out of his really busy schedule he spared uh, some time for us and we are really excited for that so thank you very much maras for joining so today's topic uh, uh, that i thought of uh, is a discussion on last time there were some questions on problem of evil Mm. and then uh, today's topic that we thought of is uh, a discussion on hermeneutics so maybe i don't know how to merge them together but uh, maybe i can <laughs> start with a question that may lead to uh, yes we focused on. we just um, go with the flow <laughs> so uh, so personally for me also and for many of my friends and uh, even uh, those who are trying to approach religion and spirituality from a uh, kind of a secular background or so to say secular background with uh, training in science and philosophy so it's really the first thing uh, people encounter uh, about god is the issue on problem of evil so if <laughs> the perennial discussion on if god is all good all benevolent uh, all perfect uh, omniscient then why he can allow evil in this world so that's a problem not only it has been raised uh, many centuries back but still in recent times also even the mainstream uh, so to say the atheist uh, maybe militant atheists i would say people like richard dawkins and all so uh, this is one of the primary arguments uh, they give before uh, uh, for their for supporting the thing that god doesn't exist so mm-hmm. how can as a practitioner uh, like you who have been practicing for many decades uh, uh, so and inspiring many others uh, so how would you answer this question that uh, if god is all good then how we can allow evil in this world of yeah. many sorts yes well hmm. first i want to say thank you again for this opportunity to um, be with you and uh, i also want to say Uh, since this question has been uh, persistent over centuries if not mi- millennia uh, d- please don't expect a definitive answer from me from little you know this little swami um, but i may be able to help us think more about the question and uh, what what would be the implications of uh of how how we might answer it or if um if the questioning leads us into deeper questioning i mean by that it seems to me when we're 
when we're trying to contemplate ultimate truth, ultimate reality, uh, the first thing we have to do is confront our um, our uh, insignificance, <laughs> how small we are, how small our um, capacities are, how little we know about anything. Um, I don't have the exact quote, but it's been said that we are uh, sitting on a small island of knowledge surrounded by a sea of, not ignorance, but a sea of unknowing. In other words, we, we know a few things. Uh, but compared to what we don't know, <laughs> um, it is infinitesimal what we know. And we try to extend, we try to, yeah, we try to extend our knowing, our comprehension um, with our philosophy and with our theology and so on. But um, as we stretch ourselves uh, mentally and intellectually and spiritually, what we are in, what we invariably find is uh, there are limits. We come to some limit in our understandings beyond which. Um, we know there is more to comprehend, but we are not in a position to comprehend. One general comment, but on the other side, uh, we have Krishna's statement in the Bhagavad Gita that one who knows him, Krishna, knows everything. And how do we know the Supreme Personality of Godhead. How do we know the Lord? Krishna explains that also, that we know the Lord by devotional service. Tattvata, <clears throat> we can know the Lord in reality. Bhaktya, by means of bhakti. And so that gives us hope that we may be able to uh, comprehend the, the Lord and his, his ways. And of course, we, we make a presupposition when we agree uh, to uh, practice bhakti, and that is that uh, the recipient recipient of our bhakti actually exists and that he or she or combination of both uh, are conscious, are able to, um, are aware of our devotional activity. So that's a presupposition which the question 
um, how is it possible? It's a it's a question which is very understandable, and at the same time we want to recognize it. It comes from a position of skepticism, and there are different degrees of skepticism. Um, there's what's called sometimes radical skepticism, which means no matter what you uh, say about something, uh, there will be another doubt uh, that comes. And so you get infinite regress of doubting as the sort of base position, uh, which René Descartes, uh, the French philosopher of the... Um, 17th century, uh, he tried as best he could uh, to get to the bottom of doubting, to try to find something certain, to find some certainty. And the only certainty he could find was that he exists. <laughs> Otherwise, all his speculations carry no meaning. <laughs> Well, he he understood, oh, I'm doing all this doubting. So this doubting is going on. So that's only possible if I exist. And so, cogito ergo sum, I'm thinking, therefore I'm existing. That's about as far as he got, it seems. He was actually theist, theistic, though. He believed in the existence of God, and he had arguments for why he believed or why, one, why it's rational to believe uh, in the existence of God. Um, the question, um, if God is all good, um, how is it that we see evil Is, is questioning the existence of God. Uh, it's basically saying, A, we see and we experience evil. And uh, B, the claim that there is an all-good God is inconsistent with our experience. It's inconsistent uh, with what we see and what we, what we experience and what others see and experience. Uh, it's inconsistent. Uh, why? Because we make an assumption, and that is that God, if God exists, he must be all good, and all good must mean that there would be no evil, or what we perceive as evil. And what seems to be necessary to go deeper into the question is to ask ourselves, first of all, what do we mean by, uh, what do we mean by God, and what do we mean by uh, all goodness, and then what constitutes evil? And 
a general point, uh, I think, that can be safely made about the atheist position that says, since we see that there is evil, and since we understand God, if he exists, must be all good, uh, and therefore would not um, countenance the existence of evil. Therefore, God does not exist. Um, I, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I believe that there is a presupposition here on um, the comprehension of God. There is a limited understanding of what or who is God. And that limited understanding of God is usually based on, mm, well, for those sort of, I call them born-again atheists, <laughs> you know, the, the modern, the modern uh, scientistic argument against the existence of God seems to be based on certain uh, very simplistic ideas of God rooted in the Abrahamic traditions or their understanding of what the Abrahamic traditions are. But if we take the Abrahamic traditions, uh, we can take in from the Hebrew Bible, the so-called Old Testament of the Christians, there's the book of Job, um, the book of Job tells a story, uh, which is that God has a wager uh, with L Lucifer, with uh, the fallen angel, um, to test uh, the devotee of God named Job. Um, by uh, taking everything away from him, taking his health, his wealth, uh, everything from him, and to see what is his response. And uh, Lucifer, the devil, is saying, you will, you will see that he will no longer be your follower. Your, he, he will no longer um, be devoted to you. And uh, and God is sort of wagering. No, he is a very serious <laughs> devotee. He will pass all the tests. I'm telling this story simply, but it's uh, it's a very famous story, and it's considered one of the most beautiful parts of the of the Bible in terms of the language, the literary quality, and so on. Anyway, uh, and huge number of commentaries have been written just on this one book. So step by step, everything is taken away from this um, apparently successful, you know, wealthy person. He has a nice family and everything is going well for him. And suddenly everything goes wrong for him. And then it gets worse and it gets even worse and it gets even worse and... And um, he's, he's in a totally desperate situation. And, and he's really wondering, you know, God, why have you done this to me? And then the dramatic moment in the story comes. God 
speaks to him sort of out of the thunder, out of the out of the sky or something, and and thunders at him that basically, who do you think you are uh, to presume to have any understanding about who I am? Um, again, he speaks in very poetic kind of very powerful ways, but basically that's, as I understand, that's the message that he's, he's making, is that you're making an assumption about who I am, about God, um, which is based on your very limited perception, and that's your mistake. And so um, you need to wake up and, and just acknowledge that you're actually dealing with some someone who is so much greater than you could, can ever, ever imagine. And he asks him, I remember now, um, rhetorically, uh, God asks Job, where were you when I created the world? So, you know, how can you even begin to understand... Uh, the the power of God, how can you begin to understand the nature of this world? You were not there. Uh, you were a product of this world. So um, so so get humble. <laughs> He's already been made completely humbled, and God is telling him, you're not humble enough yet. Anyway, that's uh, the point being that mm, often the criticism or the, the atheist claim there cannot be God seems to be based on a very limited notion of God, and that limited notion seems to come uh, especially from a limited understanding of uh, the Abrahamic tradition's understanding of God. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, the kind of uh, infinite uh, goodness of God. And uh, so as I understood, so the goodness of God also includes evil. Is that uh, correct? Uh, how, how, how does one reconcile, uh, I mean, um, the goodness of God uh, also containing uh, the part of evil as a quality? I mean, mm. in sense, uh, well, here we may want to resort to our own Vaishnava way of expressing it uh, in terms of light and dark, um, where the dark is the absence of light. It's not, it's not in opposition to darkness or in opposition to light. It's in opposition to... Um, it's not in opposition. It's just the absence of light, and so we understand um, the analogy is given that God is like the sun, and mm, Maya illusion or dark is is compared to darkness. And where there is um, where there is the light of Krishna, there is no question of the darkness of Maya. Uh, the idea of evil, again, this is a very Abrahamic notion, <laughs> evil. Um, uh, 
And it ties in, I would say, very much with the Abrahamic notion of sin. Uh, but sin is, mm, I don't know, the, the original derivation, I think it has to do with the idea of turning away from God, which we understand also very, very much. But we usually speak of this in terms of ignorance rather than sin. I had one professor uh, of Indian religions um, who used to joke because in the he himself was a, from a Christian background, and he sometimes would say, "Actually, I'm kind of a Christian Buddhist." He was inspired also by some aspects of Buddhism, but anyway, he said. Um, uh, in Christianity, they say that there is um, what is called original sin. This is actually an idea that came, I believe it was promoted uh, by St. Augustine in the 4th century, that all of the suffering and, uh, and misery and evil that we see in the world is due to this original sin which came soon after creation, and which is described in Genesis as uh, disobedience to God, who, uh, who specified uh, a certain rule that you can enjoy this garden, the Garden of Eden, uh, but do not take any fruit from this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and evil. And of course, uh, they were persuaded. So the story goes, it's a bit misogynist, perhaps, uh, that it's Eve, the woman who submits to the temptation. Uh, but this professor I had used to say, well, they say original sin, um, but in India, you would say uh, original ignorance. It's not sin so much as ignorance, but maybe it comes to the same thing because in English to ignore someone uh, is to, you know, turn away and act as if the person is not present. Um, where were we? So, uh, is evil within the goodness of God? We might say that, but um, I'm not sure what that idea illuminates <laughs> to say that. <laughs> of course, one way, one thing it might uh, tell us is uh, it might point to the to the notion of education, the idea that everything that happens in this world is for our education. So God has a purpose. Uh, yeah, he has a he has a teaching purpose, didactic purpose, uh, which, yeah, our Srila Prabhupada would uh, speak like that. He would uh, say the material world is a prison, and a prison is for punishment, um, but it's also for re rectification, and rectification suggests education. 
But it, it persists in being uh, an intriguing question, why evil or why, why the incredible suffering that there is, um, especially when we feel that um, we see persons who, from all evidence, are innocent and then they have to suffer. So the answer that our tradition gives is um, you have to look beyond the present life. You have to go to previous lives. And that means you have to um, acknowledge what is called karma. Uh, there, there is action which has reaction and that this holds up from lifetime to lifetime. Um, some we may say this is completely sensible. It has its own challenges uh, because, first of all, if it's a process of learning, of education, uh, generally when you are punished for something, you are informed what you're being punished for. And uh, so the argument goes, how do I know what it is I'm being punished for. I don't remember what I did in my previous life for which I'm being punished now. To which one possible answer, although um, how convincing it is to someone is a question, but a possible answer is um, you may not be um, fully conscious of the reason but uh, you, you, on some level, you do know, and you may not know the particulars of what you did, but um, because, because Paramatma is there, and uh, you are associated as Atma with Paramatma, and Paramatma remembers, uh, so you are being given... Um, a lesson in such a way that it 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 doesn't it doesn't depend on the particulars of whatever you've done, uh, but it will be learned so that you will not do the same again. That that can be one argument. So uh, for atheist, actually, the problem is uh, probably somewhere else because uh, for him, like uh, if we need to explain, we have so many theological. Uh, ideas to bring in. So an atheist, uh, I mean, he is not ready to imbibe so much of uh, theological baggage. So, so for him, there is no, uh, uh, even afterlives, there is, uh, he's just questioning the existence of God and uh, he's not willing to accept uh, life beyond this current life. So any kind of uh, reward or punishment uh, is something uh, becomes really superfluous uh, when mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it, when it spans over many lives uh, or not necessarily restricted to this one life. Yeah, so, but we would, is, we would, I think uh, one would want to point out that to not accept that is, um, is means there are some, some presuppositions there. Right. Uh, and uh, it, there's a metaphysical, um, there's, it's taking a metaphysical position which is not um, automatically... It, it, it's, by the, yeah. 
it's not necessarily the case. Uh, it's based on, you know, the, the notion that ultimate truth is uh, reducible to physical matter. And uh, this is very, very much questionable. And it has been and continues to be questioned. Um, the case that the case for ultimate truth being reducible to matter uh, depends on what Prabhupada called uh, the um, what was it a, um, a a check which is not a post dated check yeah that's it. <laughs> We will, in the future, find this and that and the other thing. Um, incidentally, I, I, you may find it interesting, I was reminded that uh, Srila Prabhupada, today I, I read this, that in a morning walk, I think it was, um, in Los Angeles, maybe 1973, Srila Prabhupada was speaking with uh, some devotees, including scientist devotees. And he was uh, speaking about their mission. He said that um, that our, our worship of Krishna is our internal affair. And uh, to... Um, uh, to preach that life comes from life, this is our external business. This is our public business. So he, he kind of boiled down to two, two principles, uh, internal and external. And I think what he was saying is don't get them mixed up. Um, don't, uh, don't expect the skeptical scientists and whoever uh, to first accept Krishna. Uh, yeah. just, just start with life comes from life. Do you accept this or not? <laughs> and a prerequisite to all of spiritual science probably because of that only Bhagavad Gita starts with, uh, with an understanding that uh, you are not limited to this life, uh, your eternal beings. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's lesson lesson number one. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, I would request all the participants if they have any questions, uh, they can uh, type in the chat box. Mm -hmm. I'll try to integrate them in my questions. Uh, if time permits, uh, we can allow you to directly ask. Also, no problem. So, so maybe uh, we can make a little detour, maybe in a <laughs> guided detour. <laughs> in the sense, uh, uh, we are talking about uh, interpretation of uh, the original sin, uh, different uh, sections you quoted from Hebrew Bible. And uh, so uh, here uh, the question really comes, uh, uh, I mean, who really grants the authority to kind of interpret in the sense, uh, where does really the meaning lies? Is it really in the text or uh, is it really cooked up from... Uh, uh, from the mental stage of a person or maybe uh, realization if you would like to say for, for a spiritualist. Hmm. So where does the meaning really lie? I mean, who grants the authority to, for what purpose uh, to really give a interpretation? Uh, like uh, the same uh, 
like uh, in the bible uh, as far as my little reading so uh, the genesis uh, in the whole six six days or so uh, the whole creation happened mm. or things like uh, the earth is flat and um, many such things and similar yeah. such things also come uh, in our uh, tradition mm. and not only our everywhere so uh, so how how uh, like there is one way to interpret these things with faith as an insider Mm-hmm. but what we are really uh, interested to understand is as an outsider like a skeptic uh, who is not really going to who is not sure of uh, whether god exists or not whether afterlife exists or not whether this whole theological enterprise is uh, true or not so for an outsider who is looking beyond the tradition who is not himself a practitioner so for him such kind of text uh, which is not really matching with uh, modern day understanding so it poses a big big challenge so mm-hmm. when people question uh, the authority of uh, this text which really carry the baseline of any kind of uh, further discussion on uh, anything spiritual so no matter how much we take uh, so uh, so the main question is uh, where does the really meaning lie i mean <laughs> what grants authority for the interpretation i mean would you like to answer in, in some some <laughs> <laughs> I will try to say something. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I face this okay. question over and again uh, yeah. times from the colleagues. Mm-hmm. So, Srila Prabhupada, um, as you I'm sure know, uh, met this one professor in Moscow in, I believe it was, yes, Katovsky in 1972, perhaps. And... Um, was that you are accepting authority i am accepting authority let us acknowledge that we are both accepting authority <laughs> and this is already something difficult for this uh for the more hardcore materialist because uh the we may not want to even use the word materialist because it's uh has some very negative um baggage maybe just naturalist uh is a more general term so the naturalist uh will be skeptical and say i don't accept authority i accept um uh my own um perception my own reason perhaps a combination of both uh or one over the other and that's been a debate in western philosophy between the empiricists empiricists and the rationalists um but uh i think we want to look because you mentioned the word authority several times what's the authority for interpretation um and i think the first step is to say well let's recognize that we always follow authority we may have different authorities that's all right um a second point is um to recognize and this is mentioned in bhagavad gita chapter 17 shraddha mayo yang purusho yo yat shraddha eva sa everyone has shraddha everyone has faith that faith may be uh this quality or that quality this directed this way or that way but 
some sort of faith will always be there. In, in the context of 17th chapter, it's faith in terms of the modes of nature. Um, but just taking the general point that there is faith and that everyone has it, including the atheist. The atheist's faith is that there is no God. <laughs> but uh, the question comes then, if there's no God, then who is the authority? That means you're making yourself the authority. But why should we accept you as authority? Then the burden of pr proof goes on such a person uh, to accept their authority as opposed to, for example, uh, the authority of Bhagavad Gita, uh, which is being read and studied uh, since uh, thousands of years. Mm. Okay, that's, that's one point. Then um, accepting that we we do follow or we accept authority, then your question is how, um, in terms of interpretation, and interpretation is about interpreting, well, broadly speaking, um, semiotics would be the broad to topic of signs that are then interpreted um, by one who perceives a sign. Uh, more specifically, maybe language, is a subset of um, semiotics, of signs. And uh, more specifically, then the question is, what texts are we considered worthwhile to interpret? And that's where uh, we, we come pretty quickly to the whole subject of epistemology uh, and how do we determine pramana and so on? And uh, there you, well, even in that sphere, uh, you come to different ideas about interpretation. But if we look at the Vedic tradition, broadly speaking, uh, the whole branch, uh, the, the entire darshan of Purvamimamsa, Mimamsa is the general term, more specifically, Purva Mimamsa is usually used uh, to speak about mm, sometimes Karma Mimamsa, but there's Purva and there's Uttara Mimamsa. Mimamsa can be translated as deliberation, but the specific, one of the major specific concerns of the Mimamsakas was how to understand the meaning of uh, the Vedic texts, specifically the, um, the, er the early Vedic texts, the texts involved uh, in the practice of ritual. And uh, the Mimamsa Sutra, the very first foundational text, begins, uh, as I remember, Atato Dharma uh, Jigyasa. Now is the time to understand dharma. And it makes the argument mm, right in the beginning that we 
have to recognize that there is a sphere of knowing which is inaccessible to us as human beings, inaccessible to our senses and inaccessible to our reasoning. And that sphere of knowing is called dharma. And so what it's saying is there's something that's beyond our capacity, um, our limited worldly capacity, and we have to accept, and that's authority. <laughs> and so then it becomes very important uh, to make sure one is understanding that authority that, um, as it's given in the t in the texts, that one's, you know, getting the message, right? And so they go uh, into elaborate uh, explanations about how uh, processes for interpreting, uh, in, in particular, there's uh, the shatlakshana, the six different features of a text by which you can um, detect, you can analyze the meaning of a text from the beginning uh, of the text, the end of the text, what's original, uh, what is repeated, mm, uh, what is praised, and so on. Uh, but uh, they're also concerned about how language works uh, the Mimamsakas became very concerned that how, because interpretation of language, okay, so then how does language work? And it's the Mimamsakas who made the claim, which was quite radical, um, that the Veda is apurusheya. And they meant this very literally. We sometimes hear in the Vaishnava tradition, yes, Veda is apurusheya, but it is spoken by God, by Vishnu, by Narayana. But the, the strict Mimamsakas would reject that. They would say, no, 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 no. Apurusheya means no person, no divine person, no any kind of person has, spoke, has given Veda. Why? Because it's always there. And uh, their argument seems to be um, something like, um, try to show that that's not true. <laughs> they just, you know, it's your problem. They put the burden of, um, yeah. of, falsi of falsification on someone who... Uh, doesn't want to accept that. <laughs> yeah, probably rejection is a bit more easier than assertion <laughs> because mm. uh, whatever you claim, we can easily reject. Yeah. That. <laughs> so that's a... But here also, I mean, here, this is a point that I'm, I can't say with uh, certainty, but it, uh, it's it's something that I've been reflecting on. Uh, based on something that our Srila Jiva Goswami says, which is that um, the, the Veda that we presently have is actually only a fraction of uh, the original Veda. And to me, that suggests something interesting, which is, 
could it be the case uh, that um, all of the sacred literature of of the many different traditions of the world are actually more or less in touch with or connected with a kind of, let's say, an invisible ocean of Veda, where where the word Veda uh, is used in the general sense of knowledge, as opposed to uh, the the narrower sense of, you know, Rig Veda Sama, Yajura and Atarva Veda Samhitas. And to me, there's something to be said here because if we study uh, these different traditions, we find there is there are deep insights, there are points of wisdom uh, which we can agree with. Um, so much is there, uh, which we wouldn't want to say, oh, that's nonsense. No, there is so much. There may be many things that we wouldn't accept. For example, uh, the going back into the what's considered Vedic tradition proper, uh, one of the six darshanas, uh, astika darshanas, is yoga, um, and. Uh, this yoga darshan, according to our uh, 18th century Acharya, Srila Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur, um, we do not accept the conclusion uh, of this darshan, the philosophical conclusion. But the processes of practicing yoga that are described, no problem. In fact, um, a fair amount of what is described in Patanjali Yoga Sutra, we can also find in Bhagavad Gita. Uh, so, um, yeah, the point is we may not agree with a particular conclusion of, of some, yeah, darshana, whether it's, whether we call it astika or we call it not even nastika, um, but there can still be points of wisdom, points of insight. And where is that wisdom insight coming from? Well, if we use the word Veda in the broadest sense, we may want to say it's coming also from Veda. Even if their followers are saying, no, no, we don't, we reject Veda. What they're rejecting is specific corpus, which is shrunk down from, according to Jiva Goswami, from the original and what they're especially rejecting, uh, it seems, at least the Buddhist tradition, is uh, they're rejecting the sacrificial tradition because of the excesses that were being practiced of the animal killing. Um, so the question, who, who do we follow, uh, who do we accept as authority to interpret? Well, Another way maybe of getting at this, but again, it may not be interesting for the hardcore naturalist, but uh, if we go to our Narottandas Thakur's statement, Sadhu Shastra Guru Vakya, 
Hridoye Koryo Aikya Satatam Vatsibo Prema Mate. He says that uh, the words of the sadhus, the shastra, and the guru, Hridoye uh, Koryo Aikya, having become in an Aikya, a singularity, a one clear message or vision in my heart. Satatam basibo prema maje, I will constantly float in the ocean of prema, amidst prema. Now, we can turn that around and say, what's the test for interpretation, that it's good interpretation? Well, it's going to be something that leads to, and again, this is what Prabhupada would say, uh, every religion is good, which is teaching love of God. So, um, if we take this working backwards, that we 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 start with the position of loving God. How do we get there? Uh, we get there by some, possibly by some combination of teachings from, uh, yeah, three kinds of sources. Uh, from Shastra, from Sadhu, from Guru. But as I said, the, the hardcore naturalists will say who they won't accept Shastra, they won't accept Guru, they won't accept Shastra, uh, Sadhu. Um, but then we can ask, so who, who do you accept? Again, you're accepting authority. Um, and uh, they would say we accept a natural authority. I mean, the laws of nature, or <laughs> so something like uh, which uh, I can verify. You can verify. Anybody can in this world verify. It's objectively true. But then the question on the objectivity of uh, this kind of verbal testimony, uh, whether it is uh, sastra or guru or sadhu. So mm -hmm. the the issue lies over there. I mean, whether it, how they trust them, whether they are true or whether they are leading to a true picture, whether I am able to understand it properly. So, mm. but what warrants their uh, truth? So that is the issue. Probably. Yeah, a little bit of faith has to be there in the beginning, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> Ado, Ado Shraddha, uh, Srila Rupa Goswami says, in the beginning, there needs to be some faith. And that faith uh, comes... It's really a very personal thing. And I've seen that also uh, with some of our, you know, very um, qualified um, colleagues, uh, Krishna Bhaktas, that uh, they can, often it can, take a, um, it can take a long period of time, but they can change the heart of someone uh, just by their association. And that's also the key that we always hear again and again, that it's really about association. Yeah, true. So uh, just one more question about, not, not related to this, but uh, I mean, how much time do we, do we have? Uh, it's uh, Well, almost, may, maybe okay. another 15 minutes or so. Okay, okay, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. So, uh, maybe I can be more specific. Uh, uh, so, one thing that comes to my mind is uh, often 
one one of the one of the many uh, acquisitions uh, that is uh, presented by um, say hardcore atheist is uh, or even uh, those who are kind of agnostic uh, they are kind of making a norm not so swift but slow uh, transition to being a believer so the question of uh, circular reasoning things like uh, like uh, say the scripture is uh, a statement of god that's why we accept and uh, um but then uh, we believe because uh, we believe on god because scripture says so mm-hmm. <laughs> so then why do then somebody may say that why do you believe uh, scripture because it's the statement of god it's kind of cyclic uh, logic mm-hmm. so in formal logic uh, i mean the kind of practice that is yeah it, it, it's it's wrong actually in circular yeah circular yeah so so how does uh, uh, our tradition maybe uh, answers to such kind of uh, allegations uh, that uh, the authenticity of uh, sabda praman so what yeah. what reason? well couple, a couple of points one is uh, let's take in bhagavad gita we have um as you said the 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 scripture is making this statement here is god uh and and then um of course we have the in the bhagavad gita it's in the form of the dialogue of krishna speaking with arjuna and um at one point in the 10th chapter krishna uh, arjuna responds or he proclaims you know param dhamma param brahma param brahma param dhamma pavitram paramam bhavam purusham shashvatam divyam adidevam ajam vibhum and then he goes on uh, to cite other sages other authorities he's saying it's not just me who says this it's also asita and devala and so on and we read this at least us in the west like okay but who's asita and who's devala <laughs> never heard of them before um it's assumed we know that these are great sages okay um give give the benefit of the doubt but the general principle is there i think that it's pointing to it's hinting that there's some kind of consensus that it's not simply this one text that's making a claim but uh, that it's actually extending out beyond the text um and you know prabhupada would say even shankaracharya would <laughs> would say that <clears throat> narayana is uh, beyond this material nature so so that's one point another point is you can think of it as circu- circular logic maybe strictly speaking but uh from the from this from a spiritual perspective it's not a circle it's more of a spiral yeah a spiral means means it's rising as it circles and so you 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 come around um you come from one point a to point b and sort of back to point a but actually you're not at point a you're you're now at point c uh 
and you're, you're rising. And what I mean by that is shraddha, ado shraddha, the beginning is faith. Uh, and it's a leap of faith, as um, Søren Kierkegaard would put it, uh, the Danish philosopher, 20th century, 19th. Um, there's, there's a point at which uh, one has to make a, a leap. And that's a leap of trust. And then when you see a little bit of confirmation that... Um, Yes, this makes sense, and yes, this is um, somehow fulfilling. Uh, and yes, uh, the words are making sense. I mean, just take the analysis of the dynamics of mm, engagement of the senses and sense objects in the Bhagavad Gita. It's perfectly reasonable. Uh, what Krishna is saying, uh, that jayato vishayan pungsa sangasteshu vajayate. I mean, we've all experienced it. <laughs> <laughs> many, many times. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and so many things he's saying which are just reasonable about this world, then we build on that reasonableness and say, well, Okay, um, let's let's take the next step. Let's keep going with that. And um, at each step, there is a small leap, but we add up all the leaps of faith, and then what can come as a uh, as the sum total of those jumps, if you like, is a very solid uh, conviction. And that is based on on experience. It's not uh, just empty. It's it's faith, not belief. Prabhupada would say, you can believe anything today, believe something else tomorrow, uh, but uh, this um, this is based on experience. But it's also based on a certain what is called. Uh, a kind of um, intellectual charity where you give a benefit. It's called giving benefit of the doubt. Um, that, okay, let me, let me see. Maybe this is possible. Prabhupada says that in his introduction to the Bhagavad Gita, that to, to, benefit from reading the Bhagavad Gita, one needs to at least theoretically um, accept uh, the claim that Krishna is God and the Supreme Personality of God. So it's uh, saying, okay, let's, let's allow that as an intellectual, mm, as a thought experiment, if you like, and uh, see where it takes us. But if someone is not willing to even take, you know, one step, uh, then you can argue until you're blue in the face. <laughs> <laughs> That's why probably the evil is there. Uh, by God's grace, uh, evil is imposed upon the living entity so that he may 
someday he may turn to him. <laughs> yes. Well, that's explained by uh, Jiva Goswami in his Tattva Sandarbha, that um, when Maya, um, or when it's said in the Bhagavatam that Maya is embarrassed to come before Krishna, uh, that this Maya is actually doing her service uh, of creating fear in the conditioned soul, and that fear forces the conditioned soul to turn toward the Lord. So, yeah, you could say that's a, that would be a reason, an explanation of what we're calling evil. Yeah. So maybe one last question from my side. Uh, mm -hmm. in the, for a person who is, uh, say, uh, he's, uh, he has become a little favorable towards a uh, spiritual path of any sort, and uh, he's trying to follow a particular path. And uh, so there, uh, when he encounters, the first thing probably he encounters is the scriptures. So uh, the issue of, uh, I mean, when he reads the scriptures, so there are two ways. One is uh, either he literally accepts uh, the words, word by word, the meanings, uh, hmm. or maybe he tries to read the mind of the author mm -hmm. or one who has compiled, or uh, I mean, with a full faith that whatever uh, is written is 100% perfect. It's only me that I'm not able to understand the right meaning. I mean, which is the, the, the literal statements are true, but I'm not able to figure it out. But then there is other way that maybe uh, uh, these literal statements are just the symbols. Mm -hmm. Maybe there is a hidden meaning, uh, something. Uh, There's figurative. Totally mm -hmm. Yeah. So which of the two approaches of, uh, which of these two hermeneutical approaches uh, uh, is a proper way recommended mm -hmm. or one cons? Yeah, this is, um, it's discussed in Chaitanya Charitamrita. Um, in Adi Lila chapter 7 um, where Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is meeting with the um, sannyasis in Varanasi and uh, this is one of the basic points that he's making is that um, we take uh, the literal meaning so long as it makes sense. And this also varies from time, place, uh, maybe true now, maybe may not be true 100 years. Uh, is that uh, also? That's not part of what he's discussing there. I mean, they're discussing Vedanta, which is understood to be, you know, not not subject to Desha Kalapatra. Um, but uh, but the tradition recognizes that statements um, may not make sense if they're taken literally, and so they can be taken figuratively, or indeed they can be taken um, poetically. And, um, you know, the famous example is Gangayam Goshaha, uh, the, uh, the, the village on the Ganga cannot mean that there's a village floating on the Ganga. And so it must mean a village on the bank of the Ganga. Uh, but what is the significance of that is, um, is the Dvani, the, 
suggestion, the poetic suggestion, that this that there are pleasant breezes blowing, and so this is a very pleasant place to be. It's not even mentioned in any one of the words, Gangayam uh, Gosha, but it's implied. And so the entire, um, actually the whole of Vedic Shastra, especially the Bhagavatam, is full of such meanings for which indeed it's very valuable to have uh, the elucidation of um, the interpreters we recognize as qualified, uh, the acharyas. And in that way, uh, there can be a very rich understanding. And it doesn't have to be that um, it's either literal or uh, figurative or, um, you know, simply giving a suggestion. Example is uh, with the the childhood pastimes of Krishna killing various demons in Vrindavan, and we find our um, previous Acharya, Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur, giving allegorical interpretations uh, for each one of the demons as representing various mm, anartas in the heart which uh, are then destroyed by Krishna. He is, when he makes these allegorical interpretations, he's not denying, he's not thereby saying, it's not that, you know, there was no such demon and there was no Krishna who killed the demon. No, he's saying there was the demon and there was Krishna who killed the demon. And in addition, we can appreciate, we can meditate on this pastime for our benefit uh, as, as a way of purifying the heart from uh, the various anartas. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I'm sorry for the participants that I couldn't take up your questions. Uh, maybe one question from participants, uh, would that be okay for us? Okay, Good. maybe with a short <laughs> answer. Yeah, very short answer, yeah. Uh, anybody having any burning question? Uh, like, like to ask? <laughs> Burn, burning question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not the purpose of burning us, but having a quick answer. Hmm. Somebody is raising, Siddharth is raising his hand. So please go ahead quickly. We have a very short time. Or he can speak. Yeah. Hare Krishna Prabhuji, Dandod Pranam. Hare Krishna. Prabhuji, just a second. Yes. Prabhuji, I... I just want to develop a book reading habit and today I started with a book Brahmacharya in Krishna Consciousness. Ah. So I came across this verse, uh, as long as living entity is not completely self-realized, as long as he is not independent of the misconception of identifying with his body, which is nothing but a reflection of the original body and senses, he cannot be relieved of the conception of duality, which is epitomized by the duality. 
between men and women thus there is every chance that he will fall down because his intelligence is bewildered mm. so it is very difficult like i am not able to uh, understand this uh, uh, prabhuji mm. why this like uh, in earlier days the culture was followed uh, 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 like a man and woman they are living uh, like he, anyone cannot even see but now the society is very different we have abandoned that culture hmm. so i think this verse is uh, related to that can you uh, please uh, throw some light hmm. uh <laughs> i can try <laughs> um yes one one issue is uh changes of let's say cultural and social behavior uh over time through the centuries that's one issue and the other is the more um uh, transcendent principle which i think is being emphasized in what you read mm. and uh to the to the social and cultural practices we can just say that the the idea mm, of separation of various sorts of separation uh, between the sexes was a kind of realism a kind of recognition that um we all have this problem and the problem is uh, that we are overwhelmed by this duality um and the reason we're overwhelmed is because of identification with our physical bodies so just recognizing that that's the reality the social uh system was meant to set up uh boundaries of various sorts uh to to restrict to control to restrain and to help us to practice uh restraint with the aim of uh ultimately realizing our spiritual nature to become free from uh the from mundane attractions and so i guess what you're saying is it seems like these boundaries have uh largely fallen away um and yes that's very much uh very much true in so many cultures now including india uh influence maybe a lot by the west but where one kind of boundary is broken down i think we can be sure that other sorts of boundaries will make themselves manifest and those and that can happen in ways that we may not be able to anticipate um what i mean by that just more specifically is uh we saw in recent decades the sudden appearance of this disease called aids um which seemed to be a kind of backlash from material nature saying you know you can't just go on mixing freely like this uh, without there being some consequence 
Yeah, that's what comes to my mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, Maras, uh, for your patient answers and so on. Thank you. Thank you. Of course, I have many more questions to ask, but yeah. <laughs> in a time, maybe on, on some later occasion. Uh, yes, we can, we can meet another time. You had suggested in your message, uh, but I, I just wanted to say I need to wait and see how my, yeah, sure, sure. How yeah. my schedule goes. So after some time, you can contact me again and we can yeah, see sure. Sure. all right yeah, thank you so much uh, i'll be in touch with you for a later uh, yeah. occasion yes so we are really looking forward uh, for your kind association these two my, sessions were really yeah my thanks to you again for this opportunity yeah thank you so much uh, we are really so indebted to you for your uh, uh, taking out so much of time for us uh, we are so thankful to you. Thank you so much. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. And thank you to all our participants also. Uh, I see in our participant list, uh, Brahmatirtha Prabhu also. <laughs> so Prabhuji guides us uh, many occasions. So thank you very much, Prabhuji, for kindly joining us. Hare Krishna.